Welcome to the media ministry of Crossroads Church Aspen. To learn more about Crossroads, visit our website at ccaspen.com. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor Steve Woodrow. All right. Okay, so we're in uh, Revelation 5. This morning, I'm going to kind of put a little bow around the first five chapters of Revelation. We're going to hone in really just on one verse in chapter 5. Then we're going to jump over to chapter 8 in a minute. Um, And as I said, we'll come back to it because chapter 6, boy, it begins a wild ride in uh, Revelation. And once we're on it, we can't get off of it. And we'll come back to that uh, in January uh, and dive deeply into into that uh, wonderful, encouraging word. So um, first of all, this morning, I want to dive in. And as I said, we're going to kind of talk about something. I'm going to step back, kind of a big overview uh, at where we've been. I think where we are as a church, as a community, as a nation, and... um, and really, folks, just a call to prayer, a call back to the primary thing God calls us to uh, as, his, as his children, the thing that really uh, makes things happen and changes things. So let me um, just start our time. And I have my computer this morning simply because I have uh, some history I want to read for us. I think some things are going to shock you that are going to really um, kind of give you some encouragement, but also shock you about the history of our nation and what really changes and what really has brought about real transformation in uh, our nation, society uh, as a whole. So let me start with these two questions. Do you want change or do you want transformation in your life? And do we know the difference? What do you really want? Just some change or do you want transformation? And then we could spread that question out, really, as we look at the world and our city and everything else. Do we want just change or do we want transformation? And do we know the difference between those two? So let me just read some stuff here, some thoughts. Change is what man can do. Transformation is what only the Holy Spirit can do working through the church and people's lives. Change can be brought about by a new plan, a new program, a new strategy, a new idea, good motivational speech, political action. We could go down the list. We can change things. Um, But transformation can only be brought about by God's people being faithful in prayer and the word of God and crying out to God in prayer. We can change our habits, our attitude, our looks, our diet, just go down the list, right? But becoming a new creation, a child of God, born again to eternal life, takes transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you want? Are you just content with change? Or do we need transformation? And there's a massive difference. We can carry about change, some change in this world, in our own life. Um, But only by a crying out, and only by the church corporately gathering together, crying out to God, as we're going to see historically here, and calling upon God to move, do we see a move of transformation that hits the church, God's people first, and then blows out, right, to meet the needs of people who are hungry to not live just with putting a nice coat on the outside, but generally want something more. Their heart is burning for something more. And and this is where I invite those watching or anybody in here, if you're kind of out there, Maybe on the fringe, or, you know, a skeptic, a seeker. Maybe you're just not sure about all this Jesus stuff or this gospel stuff. I just, I ask you to, to think about your own life. And are we content just putting new clothes over the same heart? Are we content just putting a new clothing, a new outside over the same heart? 
And, uh, and, and, or is there something more? Do we understand that, man, there's something, something needs to change in here. And just doing the same thing, a new program, a new diet, right? We live in a city that is all about change. It's all about improving self in life. But what about the heart? What about what we're becoming? What about our future, our hope? What about life after death? What about the big things in life? Um, what about our identity, who we really are? All these things, the love of God. This is what happens when God's people start praying. Again, historically, we go back, let's just, we'll just go to, uh, we can go all in the Old Testament, but let's just start in the New with Pentecost, right? When God's people in the upper room gather together, Jesus, don't leave here, pray. Learn the rhythm of transformation. Learn the rhythm of revival. Learn the rhythm of what really changes the history of the world, which is corporately, not individually. That's important. Learn the power of corporate prayer, coming together and pleading before God to move and to, to open doors of ministry, open people's hearts to change us, right, first, to change us on the inside for the Spirit of God to take hold. And what happened at Pentecost? Right? It, it wasn't just change. The Spirit of God came and just like a wind, right, rushing wind, hit that Shirley church, that 120 who were committed to, to prayer, and boom, what happened? The world was changed. That entire city that day was radically changed. People's hearts were changed. Signs and wonders went, went, went crazy, right? But we know, because we come to the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the church, and Jesus is standing. What happened to you? Where's the desperation? Where's the cry? You got content with just change, and then what happens quickly, folks, is that the environment takes over. The culture takes over. The world and its powers and ways take over and creep into the church. And the church becomes lulled into a numbness. And, and all we're doing is creating programs and, and other things. And, and where's the real transformation? It even in America has changed the context of, what, uh, of how we define somebody who's saved. Historically, when somebody said, it's a radical turn, the scripture says it's a 180 degrees turn to God away from certain things in life. It's radical transformation, some radical change immediately, right, in people's lives. But what have we sold out into as, as Americans in the church? We just, oh, if somebody just speaks of Jesus, right, we've watered down even what we call salvation, even what we call being um, touched by God. We've been satisfied with secondhand experiences. And I just throw that out to everybody here right this morning. And, and again, folks, let me just say, I'm preaching primarily this morning is to my heart. I don't want to settle any longer. And I want to reorient us as a church to what has to take place with all the hoopla, all the concern, all the dialogue. If we would pray more than we would engage and talk about everything going on in the culture, I wonder what would happen, right? If we would come together to restore, right? Jesus said, my house is to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer. That's corporately, right, coming together. Um, and he, he didn't give the upper room. He didn't say, hey, wait around here and, and do all these things, right? He didn't even say, go out and feed the poor. He says, pray and wait on the Spirit of God to come and hit you and open doors so you can minister, right, in a powerful, powerful way, not just go out and create change in what we can actually do. And so I'm speaking primarily to myself here this morning, but I, I just throw this out to us to we reorient ourselves to think about the place we're in as a nation, as a church, as this church crossroads right here in light of Aspen, Colorado. I want to reorient us with some big thoughts, right? Is that if you know Jesus, do you know that you are responsible? We as a church are responsible for this generation that lives around us? 
that we're, we'll stand before you. We're responsible to share the light. We're responsible to serve and love those that we live among. And um, otherwise, what is the point of being saved? What's the point of, uh, and then it really raises the question of where are we really at, right, with Jesus? And, and how are we going to get there? We've been lulled into this sleep of very, right, what has the culture done to the church? The culture has turned the mission of radical love and pressing bold, pressing with the love of God, has turned it inward to it's about my feelings, it's about what Jesus can do, it's turned into therapy, right? Rather than this radical Dependence on the power of God to transform a life so that life can now be a testimony of God's love and blessing out there to the hurting places, to those who are generally seeking God and want their heart touched and changed, right? Transformed ultimately, right, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, change takes planning and action, transformation takes desperation and prayer and obedience to God's word. Now, get that? Change, we can go, all of us can go right now, we can change anything. We can come together, we can put some planning together, we can take an action list, and we can go create change. It's wonderful. We need to be about that, right? In whatever vocation we're in as a church, but transformation. There is one, two, those two go together, ingredient, which is desperation in prayer and obedience to the word of God, the word and the spirit together as we see in, in the word of God. Um, what about this word desperation? Again, I think we all, and again, I'm preaching myself here. What am I desperate for? What am I really desperate for? And are we really desperate to see change happen and transformate our, in our culture? And again, I'm going to show you history in our country to show you God responds to the prayers of his people in a way far beyond you, you, we would ever imagine. I, it's gonna, I, I think it's going to blow your mind. And then the good news the expectation we should have if we restore. And I would just say this, is this desperation question, because where is the prayer meeting in the church gone? Now, what I wanna, I'm going to show you historically the proof of this, but I can show you we have churches today, and again, ours, nice buildings. We can build a crowd. We can do amazing things. We can put on a, just an amazing, right, a rock show. or We can do all kinds of things, right? But where's the prayer meeting? Where's the prayer meeting gone? And have we not merged into just the world conditioned us, right, to, to not be desperate? But we run churches like business now. You know, the church is never a business. No matter what you think, it's not a business. It's something radically different, far different. Um, it's the family of God. To represent the kingdom of God, where the presence of God is there on mission to bring transformation to a world that is... Um, taking hold of darkness and going the way of the world. And ultimately, when Jesus returns, another key ingredient, and you can look throughout history where the prayer meeting disappears in the corporate prayer of God's people, whether in Sunday morning or Sunday night prayer, wherever it is, is, is you can just see quickly the culture take over and creep into the church um, very quickly and, and, and just bring a numbness. And then that changes the entire culture of a nation, ultimately, and this is where we are. We were there earlier in our, in our history, which I'm going to get to, right, in, in just a minute. And so I, I just give us these things to think about this morning, desperation. And, and I just, it's an invite, folks, is how do, we get, how do we get desperate? How do you get desperate? Have you ever been desperate for something? And, and if you know Jesus, then that should draw you, it's desperation that draws you to him. 
And maybe for a lot of us, that is exactly how we came to Jesus in the first place because we finally got desperate. And we gave up on the, the methods of the world on the exterior and we needed something to transform and radically do something in our heart. And that's what started us seeking God, started asking questions and going after God, right? And um, I want to just take us to just a couple passages in Revelation uh, on this, uh, this note of the importance of prayer. Now, in, uh, Romans chapter 5, just verse 8, and, and, and Romans chapter 5 is the throne room of God. We were there a couple weeks ago. And, and 5 is here before 6. 6 is when Jesus starts un- taking off the seals off of the scroll that is in the Father's hands. Jesus is the only one who's worthy to take the scroll. It's the deed of this earth. It's the book of life. It is the revela- It is the continuing and, and carrying out of things that bring ultimate justice to this world and the completion of God's grand plan through Jesus, which is the uniting of all things in heaven and all things on earth. That's a restoration of Eden, this place back to his original, with his children, with his, his people on this earth, right, for eternity to be with him and, uh, and carry out his mission, which is, we'll get to those larger categories as we get back into Revelation. But listen to what verse 8 says. And when he had taken the scroll, Jesus, the four living creatures around the throne, the 24 elders around the throne, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And now don't miss that that the bowls before the throne are held. Before the very presence of God are the prayers of the saints. Now flip over to chapter eight. We'll jump ahead a little bit to where Jesus now is undoing the very last of the seals. And this last seal opens up and moves us quickly. We'll get to it. The trumpet judgments, the seal, I mean the uh, bowl judgments, the final, all of that coming to the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and brings justice and carries out his final work of this unity of bringing all things together. And it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, this is uh, chapter eight, verse one, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And when I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Look at this, verse five. Then the angel took the censer the prayers of God's people filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of lightning and an earthquake. In other words, it was this culmination. God, he moves in history according to the prayers of his people. These things are, yes, he's completely sovereign. He has a plan, but he's also very patient on his church to come alive and his believers to come alive and unite in his will in prayer. And we see this all throughout the scriptures is that God uh, Amos, I think it is 3.7. He says he does nothing. He doesn't first give his prophets to tell. In other words, he partners with us. It's an amazing thing to think about. And when people wrestle with, well, does prayer really change things? Oh my goodness. When we come to Jesus, right, we're given full access to the throne of God. The veil's torn. Our prayers go up. And here that shows the prayers of God's people or before his very throne, interacting with his own will of carrying out his plan right in the world. Now, here's something that we have to uh, wrestle with, and this is very important to understand. So once you listen carefully, I'm going to give you a couple verses uh, to write down here. Here's the reality. 
Not all prayers get to the throne of God. In light of our culture and everything else, the cheap grace and the soft sell that's going on is a lot of us, we just think anybody prays is going to get to the scripture from old to I could go verse after verse after verse. Not all prayers make it to the throne of God. Let me just give you three in the New Testament. The first one is 1 Peter 3. It says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or your prayers will be hindered. Whoa. James 4.3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. James 4.3. In other words, God is concerned about our motive. If my motive is wrong, if my motive is not right in line with the heart of God, it says we don't receive. And then James 5.16, it's the prayer of the righteous person that has great power in its working. In other words, to think that I can live my life and live in contradiction to the word of God and that God is going to hear my prayers, my intercession, scripture over and over in multiple places says, no, communion has been stopped with God. If I reject his truth, his word, on whatever point it is, if I am blatantly thinking I can live in defiance of this, is our prayers, they don't go past the ceiling. That's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? But it's reality, and this is what's so important, right, for us to understand is what is it we got to do to get to, to the throne of God and to join in this, this work of God. It's the whole church corporately together and in smaller groups where there's accountability and pushing and encouraging each other on, right, to not settle and to make sure there's the fire of God inside our soul. There's a hunger, right, for God and his truthfulness and, and what he has for us. So let me dive into... Uh, something, and then, like I said, we're going to get some history, I think, that's and some good news, some amazing news here, even in our own country and nation, that has an impact on us as a church, how we offer. Transformation by the Word and the Spirit awakens longing for Jesus' return. It's the Word and the Spirit. The Word of God with the Spirit of God makes it come alive. You can know all the Word. You can be a scholar, and it's sad to say, many of our seminaries are full of, of professors who know the Word of God, but they don't have a clue about who God is. Don't have a clue about who God is. And we're going to get to that history in just a minute as well. It's the Word and the Holy Spirit, right? They have to be there together, right, in our lives. I said earlier, you know, many of us are living off second-hand experiences. Rather than a first-hand experience, that second-hand experience, in other words, read a book or even read the Scripture, and I'm just believing what somebody else has said about God is to follow Jesus is first-hand experience. It says that my sheep, they what? They hear my voice, they follow me, and I know them. It has to be firsthand. And this is the, the role of discipleship is quickly, if it's not a firsthand experience for me, I will grow dull uh, because it's not real. And, and, and after a while, right, and this is what's so important with children as they grow through those teenage years where they have to own their faith. And as parents, we have to walk with them. Just don't do it because I say so. You need to believe. You need to be in church worshiping God and seeking his word because your own soul has met him. And God has spoken to you. That child, if he leaves and it's just because mom and dad believe this or that, guess what will happen to that faith? When they get off to college, especially in this day and age, it will be swept away in the tide of our culture and where everything is going. You got to own it. You got to have it firsthand. I got to know, right? And that's our prayer, not just for our children, but for all of us. And this is the course of discipleship. Lord, make it real. Speak to them. Make it real. Jesus, show yourself powerfully to this person. Make it firsthand testimony of, man, my experience with God, right? 
So to, um, transformation by the word and the spirit awakens longing for Jesus' return. So it was really interesting. This uh, beginning of the week, uh, I was reading a bunch of stuff that kind of comes over my desk. And, and one that came across is this article. And the title of it was, um, Why Are Christians Fearing the Return of Jesus? Whoa. And folks, what a, what a statement of the church in America and us today. That the reality of it is, is that we see in the New Testament, the church, when it comes together in prayer, one of the heartbeats, right, should be Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Right, revive us and return. Um, and that's almost not found anywhere. And again, I just say, examine our own lives. Where is the desperation? Come. Is that a part of our prayer even? Come, Lord Jesus. Come now in revival. Revive this city. Revive my heart. Revive my family. Revive this nation. And Jesus, come. Make it all right. Just bring about your perfect plan here in the end. That is to be the, the cry, the desperation of the church. And it is, as we see, uh, and that's why in the book of Revelation, it ends with this. This is the only book we're to hold on to or to keep. It's the one that comes with this huge blessing, right? If those who read it, who understand it, who keep it, right? And cry, Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, right? And so we have this really strong indictment against the church today and, and us as individual followers of Jesus uh, that, uh, that fear, that don't, don't, wanna, don't want to study the book. Why? Why? I just challenge you to go look. Find out how many pulpits around America teach through the book of Revelation. That alone. Just I challenge you. Try to find right, how many are teaching it really teaching the whole thing, word by word, by the way, not just some kind of glossy thing. So this is interesting what this article says. Let me just read some of this. <clears throat> 20% of the Old Testament prophets spoke of Jesus' first coming. 20% of the Old Testament. Folks, these stats I'm getting ready to give to you all should just blow your mind to show there's no book on the face of the earth that can even touch this. From its integrity to how it came together to, to the prophetic connection, the number of fulfilled prophecies in the, old, in the New Testament from the Old Testament, hundreds of years given before, right? 20% of the Old Testament spoke of Jesus' first coming, right? He was going to ride into a donkey. We could get a 300 plus prophecies detailing what Jesus would do when he came completely fulfilled. You'll find that in no other book in all of the history of the world, only in the Bible. But you know the scary thing is? Most people don't even know that. Scary thing is because people aren't in the word of God, even in the church that much, to know the magnitude, the glory, that this is his living, active, glorious word, right? 80% of Old Testament prophets speak of his second coming. 80% of the prophets is all about the day of the Lord, of Jesus' return, right? This is important, right? One of the most important things. 1,500 passages in the Old Testament refer to Jesus' second coming. Wow, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to Jesus' return. One out of every 25 in the New Testament. Now, what has our culture done? Where are we at as a church, as a nation? Again, culture has crept in so powerfully because the prayer meeting is gone, the desperation of calling God, making a priority. And all we do, all of our programs, strategies, everything else, is that we have set aside prayer. And let's just face it, I'm, I'm going to be the first to tell you, it's hard to pray, isn't it? It's hard. It's work. It's, 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 there's just something that seems not exciting about it because down deep inside, we, oh, is this going to do anything? This is why corporate prayer is a necessity, is that you want to learn how to pray, you get with other people who pray. And you want to keep your zeal for God, you've got to be with people who have a zeal for God. That's how we spur and fire up one another to be zealous for God, right? One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers 
to Jesus' return. That is amazing, right? Um, all right. Now we'll get to a little history lesson here. Transformation, revival, Jesus' return, it comes when the church becomes desperate in prayer. Now that is a fact of history. It's a fact of any church's life. It's a fact of any, the history of America. Transformation, not just change, transformation. The move of the Holy Spirit. Revival, the reviving of not just church and God's people, but the reviving of a nation, right? Um, come, and the scripture says that our, our, our prayers, our, our passion and desperation will spur on the return of Jesus. As we just read in Revelation, those bowls are intimate. The prayers of God's saints, come Lord Jesus, tied to the throne of God, right, and bring about, right, this, this uh, um, God carrying out his, his ultimate plan. So I want to read some stuff for you here, and this is uh, from a historian. And this is, I think, going to shock you. It shocked me. Um, we go all the way back to the 1790s. Now, we had just become, right, actually the late 1780s. And we just got, we had just become a country, 1776, right? We, we declared our independence and became a nation and everything. Um, and I think most of you know, obviously, what founded this country all the way back was people trying to find religious freedom. Yes, there was the taxation without representation, but that came later, is that um, it, everybody was a Christian, Right? That came, you know, it was founded upon the center of the community was the church, everything else. Every one of our Ivy League colleges, Harvard, Yale, Brown, go down the list, uh, all were founded as Christian seminaries, as higher education. Every Princeton, every one of them was a seminary in college, right? Training young people in the ways of God. First and foremost, you had to learn Hebrew, you had to learn Greek. Our, our, by the way, our educational system today is pathetic compared to what it was back then, just absolutely pathetic at many different levels, right? right? Again, because everybody deserves a trophy, right? They, we've lowered the bar so low, right? We're not calling people to some greatness or to do something hard. We have to make people feel like it's easy, right? And we're reaping the results of that in this generation, in multiple generations, but especially, right, this generation. Now, but listen to this. This is Edwin Urey's historian describing the situation in America in the 1780s. Drunkenness was epidemic. The streets were not judged to be safe after dark. And what about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining in a typical congregational church. Um, the Reverend um, Samuel um, said of Massachusetts, in 16 years he had not taken one young person into the fellowship, one salvation. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. And the Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, New York um, he quit, um, uh, stepped, this is in New York, over the whole Bishop of New York quit because he was not be able to confirm anybody and he went back into the workforce. The justice, Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia and he said that the church was too far gone ever to be redeemed. At the same time, you had the Enlightenment philosophers, Voltaire and other writers, basically made the big statement, right? Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years in America. It was the age of Enlightenment. We've got to get rid of all that Christianity. Sound familiar? This is 1780s, folks, okay? Just a few decades after our our, uh, not even a few decades, a few years after our independence. The spiritual state of American universities at the time concurred with such gloomy predictions, giving little or no hope for the future of faith in the land in America. Take the liberal co arts colleges um, at the time. This is amazing. Listen to this. A poll was taken at Harvard 
um, and had discovered not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical place, where they discovered only two believers in the student body and only five people in the entire university that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of the day. We could get on sidetracked on that one. Students rioted, they, they mocked communion, they had mock communions, they burned Bibles in public, they had anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth, they burned down the um, pieces of uh, religious uh, halls in Princeton, they forced res- resignation of presidents, they took the Bible out of local churches and burned it in public bonfires. Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s that they met in secret like a communist cell and kept their minutes in code so that that no one would know. That should shock you. A 1790s. Now here's the good, amazing news, okay? Is that God responded. Because God responded to the prayers of God's people. So what happened is the church got desperate. And they started calling the church back to what the church should be doing is corporate prayer. Desperation in prayer. Calling on God to move and open doors and do something, Right? And uh, I could go story after story here, but a prayer movement broke out, a renewal, and folks, no revival, no awakening, no transformation has ever taken place without first a great renewal in corporate prayer in the church. And um, uh, there was uh, one situation of a guy who's a pastor up in New England, called his church and multiple churches in New England to cut aside Monday. All the church did was gather and they prayed all day for their nation and reviving of the church. It was only, it was less than three years until God responded and guess what birthed the great awakening of America. People like Jonathan Edwards and others and it was this explosion right, of a renewal, people again being hungry for God, not being satisfied with the corruption and the direction of culture. And uh, it was only a couple of years later after they started praying. Again, this, 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 was, this sparked in a few churches with a few people, and then it just went wild from England over to America, the Great Awakening birthed. And it was just a few times, maybe some of you read about some of these revivals in Kentucky, over 10,000 people showed up, right, in one communion service to take communion and to pray for the nation. And this started happening everywhere. People started getting hungry for God. People started coming into to church and just being overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and getting right with Him. And the nation was radically changed. So let me just give you a little taste of what, to, because of the Great Awakening in America, that prayer movement that started because God responds to the desperate prayers, faithful prayers of His people all throughout history. Go back to the Old Testament, same thing. Look at Pentecost. I could go all throughout history. Without it, guess what? Culture takes over. And it gets really bad unless the church responds, right, in prayer and, and asks and pleads with God for a reviving, right? The prayer movement started, and because of, uh, of that prayer movement, let me just tell you what comes out of the second uh, great awakening. I'll just give you a few of these. The modern missionary movement was birthed out of this prayer movement. The church came, it was revived in America. And what do I mean by the modern missionary movement? You go to any country in the world and the the original founding of any hospital, any educational facility was Christian missionaries who got on fire for God and took the love of God to a whole other nation. You go to any country today, the hospitals, the schools, the relief agencies, everything else was birthed out. This was the modern mission movement. It birthed and still is blessing 
every nation just about in this, in this world. Uh, modern societies were birthed out of this. A lot of our things we see now as our 501Cs that are er, doing all kinds of things. Out of this came, this is really critical to understand, out of this was the seeds of the abolition of slavery. Where do you think, uh, where do you think Lincoln got his faith to stand strong on this issue in the heat of the battle it was because of this birthing of this prayer movement. People went after it in prayer and it just was a seed that went on all the way right through that. Just like it did in England. It was Wilberforce's faith and, and, and those he called into desperate prayer, uh, to desperate prayer that birthed that before it moved over here. It was all connected and it was tied back to the desperate prayer, right, of God's people. I could go on and on just to, saying the, the thing, the popular education, education that was given to, um, to the, uh, not just to the wealthy, but broadened out, was pushed out by Christians, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many other social benefits as drunkenness and other things. Uh, people started getting saved, radically saved, right? And, and marriages and families, everything was restored. Um, it, if you go back and look at it all, it's amazing the turnaround that happened. And we all in here today still reap the radical benefit of the great awakening of our predecessors that when society was changing as they went to their knees, God moved, bring revival and it sparked. And we are the recipients of, of a lot of this good that I would propose to us is uh, quickly eroding in our nation today across the board. Let's just start with the health of the American family. And we could go across the board on, on many, many, many other things. And so I just, I just throw that out um, to you uh, is to, and that's just one example. I mean, I could go around the world again throughout history, back to Pentecost or whatever. And, and I just throw it out just to think about, wow, well, what are you desperate for in your life? Um, and folks, I, I think we have a real awakening to, to, to own as a church locally and as well as here in America. Let's just use COVID as an example. What happened? What, how did the church respond to COVID? We fled. We fled, and we're still fleeing. We're still in isolation. We're still in the fringe. We're still re-questioning community and God's command to not forsake gathering together and many other things. Well, what, would the, what did the church do in the Great Awakening? What did the church do back to the bubonic plague? You could go to any harsh environment. Today, what is the church in Afghanistan and China doing? They gather together and they have faith to call upon the one who is the great physician and is the ruler of all worlds to stretch out his hand and to do something glorious. That's what they do. They don't scatter. They gather whether it's small or large or whatever it is, because they know in that where Jesus says there is special power, God takes notice when his people gather to go after prayer and to call upon God, get desperate before God for him to move and to open doors and to do great things. And we're at that precipice right now. Are we going to continue? Because if we lit, if we continue going like we're going, well, guess what? I'm, I hate to tell you, but it's not going to be pretty. And I just say, his, just go prove me wrong. Look at the course of, of just American history alone. And you go back to the 1790s, and that was across the board. It was quickly decaying. The quality of life, everything else was quickly decaying before, um, before the prayer movement, right? And again, just look, where is the, I challenge you, any church, where is the prayer meeting? 
Oh, we can gather for the big concert. We can gather for the great big program or whatever it is. But where's the permanent? Where's the, the faithful who are crying out to God to move in, 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 in our church, in our lives, and then right inside our community? And uh, I, I just ask us here as Crossroads, where's our heart for this community? What, what is our real, what is our desire for, for this place and this valley, let's say? And let's expand. What about the nation? What about America? Um, do we want just some change? Do we want business as usual, church as usual? Um, but, but then each of us has to go into our own life. How's your heart? Are you content with where your heart is? You content just putting new clothes over the same heart every year? As I mean, again, somebody is going to have to step into the lives of these, this generation that is the worst off in all of our history when it comes to mental health and emotional health with anxiety and all these other things skyrocketing. Where are they going to get help? Now, we have plain professionals out there doing what they can do, right? Where are they going to get help? On the deep inside. And this is, this is the beauty of revival, right? Is people, is where we're at right now is nobody's really hungry for God. And that's because there's no prayer meeting, just to be very blunt. There's no desperate prayer meeting. There's no desperate prayer when God's people gather together. And therefore, the, uh, always is what's going to happen is culture is just going to be numb. And they're just going to think, well, well, we can just do some change. We can fix our problems. Yeah, we can save the environment. We can save mental health. And, and don't get me wrong. We need to be working on all those things. But um, it's not going well, is it? And it won't. It hasn't anywhere in history where man has said, we can do this ourselves. And uh, I hate to tell Zuckerberg, but the metaverse is not going to be the answer. That is going to put more people in bondage, folks. Scary bondage to just jump out of reality. And that's exactly, think about it. If the church, if we don't start praying now for hearts to be awakened to God, you know what? The metaverse is there to say, come on in here. You think life sucks. You don't like what's going on. You don't like, just go down the list of anything. Come in here, just put these suckers on. And guess what? Just make up your own reality. That's, you realize that's exactly where that's going? And it's, it is scary, folks. And there's only one solution, right, to all that, to people's hearts. And we're going to get desperate, and we're going to call out for God to open doors. And, and here's some positive news. The testimonies are going to come, but God is opening doors. There are a faithful few gathering. And it's going to be more than just a faithful few. And I just invite, it's an invitation if you don't know how to pray, if you feel uncomfortable praying, if, if prayer is boring, if you haven't seen God move in the midst of your prayers, come join us. Come join Sunday morning as we enter in together, as we're going to close, crying out to God to move and to awaken us. Start with us. Come Sunday night. The outpost here, we have a, a team that is hungry for God. Every Sunday night, 6 p.m. right here, we are gathered and pressing. And God, make us hungry. God, do something. And that is a time that is open, right, for prayer and uh, for God to move and to spark something to come alive inside his church, right, and inside this open doors, right, for God to do something. Come join. And if you just have to sit there, just sit there. And, and that's how we learn how to pray. And the prayer is, God, waken my heart to you, to your reality, um, I'm not going to be content. I'm not going to settle, right, for, for just status quo. And I just keep putting the new clothes on every year. But my heart, what I'm becoming is there's no change. There's no transformation. Jesus promised abundant life, right? So um, with that said, as an invitation, I give you that. Come join us. Engage with us. As we step in, we need to restore prayer 
to the house of God. It starts with us individually, but it also it's a call corporately, right, to come together in this time that we're in because it's a critical time. I think it's more critical than any of us ever would realize. Um, and the amazing, the good news of all is God will respond. He always has. That's amazing, folks. He always has responded. It's just if his people will be obedient, right? And to come together and cry out to him. So with that said, I would just, uh, let's just pray. And um, these mics are open and I, I would just say what church is, when, when you read 1 Corinthians, it gives us the primary definition of what should happen in church. It's not just one-way communication. It is preaching that should hopefully awaken hearts, right, to come alive and, and to contribute, right? And um, so I, if God puts on you a prophetic word, right, this morning that is you have to encourage the church, bring it. God puts on you just a fire to come and pray for us. Stoke us in prayer, in passionate prayer for God to come alive. Come, please pray for us, right? Um, this is how Jesus, when he said, my house would be a house of prayer, right? Not all the other stuff. I mean, yes, we can have all that stuff, but not at the cost of prayer, right? Talking to him, fellowship with him. It is that that opens heaven and God's very presence comes and encourages us. So, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, we, we need you. We need you in our own hearts, Lord, to come by the power of your spirit, Lord. We need you to revive your church. We need you, Lord, desperately to shift things and, and Lord, revive things in this nation before, Lord, it, it, it gets too far down the line. Lord, come in. Lord, start with me. I don't want to settle, Lord. I... Show me how to grow in desperate prayer, Lord, just crying unto you, waiting on you to move. Lord, you are good and glorious, God. And Lord, you will be, you're patient, God. You're patient. You want all to come to know you, Lord. You're waiting on your church to get involved, to cry out, to put those prayers up in before your throne. And God, may we be faithful as a church in that. Stoke us, Lord. Awake us, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill this place. Lord, stir us up, Father. Stir us up with a holy affection, God. For your glory, God. Revive us. Revive your church. Revive this community. Do something that hasn't been done in this community, God. Make people hungry for you. Make them curious for you. Yes, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. To hear other messages or learn more about Crossroads Church, visit our website at ccaspen.com.